Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett on the second last Tuesday of winter. And I hope is that with the warmer weather, the pandemic will lessen and welcome spring as well. So stay home if you can and stay safe. And what better way than to spend the time listening to 3CR. On the program today, I'm speaking with Seattle civil rights activist, and member of Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party about America's war on the people of Afghanistan and our part in it. That's Megan Cornish. Amin Abbas is a founding member of the Australian Foundation for Palestinian Children, better known as Olive Kids, and his article in Pearls and Irritations titled People to People, Peace Initiatives in Palestine must begin with freedom and equality. More political turmoil in Malaysia as COVID spreads out of control. I'll be speaking with Malaysian-Australian Lee Tan. Macron's visit to French Polynesian recently, was it the cause of the large and serious increase in COVID? Journalist and researcher Nick McCullen has been looking at this. And the second and final part of the interview with retired trade unionist Jim McElroy and also with Coral Winter, looking back on the work of Bob Hawke to sabotage the left of the union movement and help his mates in the CIA. But first, Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when we woke up believing we were in a time warp or more likely a time machine back in 2001 when the US of the UN of the US of the world assured us we had to invade Afghanistan and wipe out the Taliban women because all these Saudis had orchestrated and conducted an attack on the US of. True Blue Aussie, through the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages, unable to get to war fast enough. A coalition of the killing invasion that worked a treat. 20 years of wasted time, wasted lives, wasted lands, wasted lies, justifications, war crimes, but trillions of dollars the merchants of death assure us were not wasted. Yet top marks for initiative to the US of puppet president, or sorry, popular president, Ashraf Ghani, 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 who as the Taliban women were moving in, pre-recorded an assurance to the nation that all was under control. Which from his point of view it was, because by the time the assurance went to air, he was Ghani. Presumably with a huge percentage of the public purse awaiting him at his destination. It's the way, isn't it, with US old puppets eventually forced to flee, their financial future guaranteed by taking the state purse with them, under the protection of the US of, which sadly couldn't protect the rest of the Afghani population, although it made a final contribution to their liberation by mowing a few down on the tarmac as it fed the country with its tail between its legs. Further proof, if more was needed, that might, might be right politically, extreme right politically, but not right morally. Of course, we only awoke back in 2001. For most Afghans, and particularly women, they found themselves waking up in the 11th century. And thus went the coalition of the killing. Mission accomplished, as war criminal George W. Bash the workers boasted 18 years ago. To give Ghani, Ghani, Ghani credit, he said he had fled the country to prevent a flood of bloodshed. See, 
altruistic, thinking only of the people to the last. Prevent bloodshed, Ashraf. Yes, mine. Interesting that Ghani spent most of his life outside Afghanistan as an academic who specialised in failed states. Practice what you preach. On war criminals, see another alleged war criminal was charged last week and will be dragged before the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. No surprise, a black African who may well be a war criminal, wait and see. But why don't we see the coalition of the killing war criminals from George W. through Barack to Donald to Joe, the current big supremo, from coalition acolytes, her most gracious majesty's home country, and true blue war criminals dragged before the same court? Oh, hang on, silly me, I forgot. The US of unilaterally legislates that it is illegal for its citizens to be charged with war crimes. Very, very smart legislation in the circumstances. Instead, it also legislates it's a crime to expose US of war crimes. So heinous, the accused has no right to plead not guilty. Guilty until proven guilty. Okay, okay, the coalition of might have been a war crime, but it was all worthwhile. Big Supremo scuttled them, Morlash son, a.k.a. Scummo, told us it was worth it because we were fighting for freedom. And George W. bashed the workers down under henchmen who obeyed the U.S. OBS orders, the aforementioned little bald-headed bloke, also assured us it was all worthwhile, but then... He would, wouldn't he? It's not quite back to the future, it's more future to the back, and the little bald-headed bloke, Warmonger, is doing just that, trying to protect his back. Look, why don't we go back to the future when rulers who declared war led the cannon fodder into battle? I reckon that'd do wonders for making them think twice. Well, making them think would be a start. And don't forget, when they say freedom, they mean freedom of capital. That's what those cream of true blue Aussie youth, brave young men and women in uniform, life of the party, love their families and dear little children, trained killers, trained kill and get trained killed to defend. And of course, they must be trained to hate the families and dear little children of the other. The other, they're trained to trained kill. On the strain killer, the Delta strain, the silent killer, a secondary problem, according to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, compared to the suffering under the pejorative Dan socialist lockdown. Poor little kids, for instance, deprived of their playgrounds. Dear little children and their parents milling around, having fun, 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 and spreading a little bit of COVID around the community. With that giant of the industrial union movement, the... Sorry, uh, dear me, the, the police association, note not union, like the shopping, the workers association, not union. Anyway, the association's Wayne Gotcha, who attacked Dan for upsetting dear little children, said members of the constabulary would approach the playground ban with, like, compassion. Let's say that again. A copper says the coppers will do their job with compassion. The coppers. We're left speechless. One of Wayne's industrial militant members said his child burst into tears watching the telly news and hearing his playground would be closed. Playground bullies! All over P1 was how the whopping sin brought its renowned objectivity to that story. Then next day, P1 screaming, So cruel! Genuinely sad story, bloke who flew from Bangkok to see his dying mother in Melbourne but was held in quarantine in Adelaide and didn't see her before she died. Note, 
Adelaide, a caring business class government that lay nothing to do with the pejorative Dan, but, oh well, blame him anyway, so cruel, the man who reduces dear little children to tears. That icon of which we're all so patriotically proud, the big true blue Aussie BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, says it is now better placed to invest in a lower carbon world after a $20 billion share swapping deal that will see its oil and gas division now operate as wood side with profits. Uh, so the merged entity will continue to produce oil and gas unabated? Uh, that's right. Uh, so how are you better placed on abating climate change if there is such a thing? Uh, because the oil and gas will not be produced and flogged off under the big Aussie name. But, but wouldn't the environment be a lot better off if you, if you stopped drilling oil and gas altogether? Well, we did consider that option as one of several possibilities. Th then why not adopt it? I can give you 20 billion reasons. Woodside with Profits, new CEO Meg O'Neill before Profits, added that producing oil and gas unabated would allow it to, quote, continue to reduce costs and carbon. <laughs> no, sorry, Lisa, she didn't explain the how bit, so we've got no idea, the, the carbon bit, that is. We can be sure they'll continue to reduce their costs, always blown out by the greed of lazy, avaricious workers. And this week, those lazy, avaricious workers were dancing in the streets and popping the corks as wage growth for the past year was a fabulous 1.7%. How's that for avarice? And while they're living it up, many of their caring employers barely doubled their profits. Why, poor old BHP on the workers announced a mere 20 billion or so profit, allowing them, and this is so exciting, to increase their dividend to shareholders. And we can be sure those shareholders and the wise practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all in the boardroom would continue to be deeply, deeply concerned at slow wages growth. But try as they might, rack their brains as hard as they might, they just can't think of an answer. Although, how can we persist with this slow wages growth myth when the streets are full of workers celebrating an exorbitant 1.7% annual wage growth? The My God, We Admire Your Perseverance Award to all those in the caring business class government who bring such an even-handed approach this week via the True Blue Aussie Competition and Consumer Con Mission. Remember the die union son Hayden, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Con Mission, established by former Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses, set up to smash the evil construction unions, with the only subsequent victim his honour himself, after sexual harassment allegations, uh, after, after during his totally neutral witch-hunting position, accused of bias by attending a caring business class party fundraiser declaring himself absolutely totally unbiased and only the most biased long-haired commie greeny wooden work in an iron cynic would suggest a deep deep philosophical hatred of and desire to smash evil unions is bias well, they're still trying, as a case arising from the con mission hit the courts this week. ACCC claiming an evil construction union officer had engaged in cartel conduct during enterprise bargaining, a charge that could have landed him in the slot for 10 years. 
Unfortunately for the caring business class government, as the matter hit the court a mere six years after his honours travails, they were forced to withdraw all charges, mainly over little matters like a lack of evidence, lack of witnesses, uh, and oh, they forgot to provide the union with documents they were ordered to provide. What bad luck. So the witch hunt still hasn't caught anybody, well, directly, other than the indirect destruction of his honour's reputation. So, Scummo and the team, good news, your My God, We Admire Your Perseverance Award is on its way, and do pass on our regards to Tiny and his honour. Now, please don't attack me for this, listener, but for once I have to agree with serial vexatious raver Clive Parmagina, and in fact I'm pretty sure you'll agree with uh, Clive as well. His latest paid P1 rant, You can't trust the Liberal and Labor parties. Don't believe them. See? We can't disagree with that. But then he says, Join the United True Blue Aussie Party. And that does stop up his point completely. Finally, words of wisdom from former Socialist Party world's greatest worst treasurer and big supremo, Paul, pictured in a very, very, very expensive working-class suit as part of the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review celebrating its 70th birthday. Under the new philosophy of leadership, you proselytise good policy. He proselytised modestly. You educate the country to good policy. Obviously, Paul believed in vain we'd learn good policy from suffering under bad policy. Good afternoon. And that was Mr. Kevin Healy with his week that was. And don't forget to tune in 9 o'clock tomorrow morning to hear the crew, including Kevin, with City Limits. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of history in the making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, 
spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in. It's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. The hand-wringing continues, the search for answers or scapegoats, as the people of Afghanistan are once again betrayed. A disaster almost two decades in the making, or should we say four decades, as it was the US who funded the Mujahideen to facilitate the overthrow of the Soviet-backed government in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And today we see the successor to the Mujahideen in the form of the Taliban. At the weekend, I spoke with Megan Cornish, Seattle civil rights activist and member of Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party. And to put the conversation into a context, I focused first on Barbara Lee, a Democratic representative from California, who in the days after 9-11-2001 gave a speech on the House floor warning that the approving of the so-called authorization of the use of military force would see the US embarking on an open-ended war with neither exit strategy nor a focused target. And asked her what her memories were of that speech. That's a good point. She certainly uh, got that totally right. At the time, we had no idea that this was going to become a forever war, and it certainly is. Talk about the lies that were told at that time of why the U.S. had to go to war once again. That is so amazing and not being talked about, you know, with our corporate media. First, they said it was because the Taliban wouldn't give up Osama bin Laden, but actually... Early on, the Taliban had indicated a willingness to talk about extraditing him either to the U.S. or Saudi Arabia, our big buddy. Then the other things that supposedly the U.S. was all about was, and of course the allies, liberating women, nation building, and bringing democracy to Afghanistan, all of which was obviously hot air. <laughs> because after not doing all of that, they're leaving only 20 years later. Well, let's talk about that issue of women. We don't hear the U.S. talking about the situation for women in their great mate Saudi Arabia or other Middle Eastern countries. Right. And, you know, Saudi Arabia is almost as bad as the Taliban, as long as they're U.S. allies and play ball, then uh, we don't care about those issues. And you also have women and their situation now in the media. 
You know, you're not hearing, oh, dear, you know, these these women are being left in the lurch. There's not a word on that. There was also talk I heard or an article I read about the fact that violence against women was even extremely high before this takeover. Yes. And one of the things that I was really happy to be able to do in the in the article I wrote in the Freedom Socialist was reference some of the writing that was coming out of Afghanistan about that. There's a left-wing monthly that's being put out by a collaboration of different leftists, and they did a whole article in March this year on how appalling the situation was for women, and not just in the Taliban controlled under the, the government throughout the country. And also, another thing that has not been talked about much that this same monthly did an article on was the situation of youth, who are a huge proportion of the population. 70% of the country is under the age of 22. You know, we know that the girls have had a terrible time getting education, but they pointed out that in much of the country, schools have been closed throughout the war. So there's huge numbers of boys as well as girls who are illiterate, therefore have very little possibility of life because they can't even read. Unemployment is sky high. You know, when they count the the losses in terms of the, the war deaths and, and woundings, when you talk about combatants even, a lot of them are not people who had a choice. It was survival for them to either join the government military or the Taliban military or some of these many other parties that are fighting in Afghanistan, or were up until recently at least. Like you said, the unemployment was so high that that was virtually the only choice for many of those young people. That's right. That and the opium trade, which the U.S. has also had a lot to do with uh, fomenting. Talk about the the opium trade. There were the stories that under the Taliban, the opium trade went down because they were paid to take out the crops. What's it been like under the occupation of the US? What has happened in the opium fields? As I understand it, a lot of, by the Taliban, a lot of the profits from it were turned over to them. But also you have to look at the U.S., which has been all about promoting the profits of the drug companies. And we have the whole scandal in this country of rise of opiate addiction in this country, some of which was officially through prescription drugs. And, of course, much of which, of which is also on the street drugs. But, you know, the same parties are getting rich off this trade on both sides of the war. You know, the U.S. and its allies having the gall to cast itself as the good guys. It's not. It's one group of bad guys against another group of bad guys. They're all making, making profits off the backs of the people. What were the promises for bringing democracy to Afghanistan? One of the phrases was nation-building. Uh, and they wanted to bring democratic values and yada, yada. And yet, in 2019, 
the Washington Post published the Afghanistan papers, which came from hundreds of interviews with people who were involved in war and over all administrations, Democratic and Republican. And they knew that corruption was rampant. A lot of the supposed reconstruction aid was going to things that were never built and just went into people's pockets. It was all a charade. Can you talk about the military-industrial complex? It's now being recognized that they are the real victors of this war and this occupation. Absolutely. The military contractors have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and the costs to the U.S. of the war, if you look at all of them, uh, not just uh, maintaining the war, but also taking care of uh, wounded soldiers after they come back and all of that, it's over $2 trillion dollars. And that went into the hands of military contractors, largely. And now a lot of those weapons have been left behind? Yes, right. And once again, the Afghan people are being, are being stuck with the, these conditions, you know. Soldiers who have come back from Afghanistan, the injured, they're psychologically disturbed. Is that an issue at all in the U.S.? Yes, I think it is. It probably will be more so as time goes on and people find that they're not getting the care that they need. Uh, it's cer that certainly was an issue for m many, many years after the Vietnam War. One of the things that makes me so angry is there are hundreds of thousands of Afghans who, who have the same kinds of physical and mental injuries, and they're not going to get help. Were there any hospitals, health centers built by the U.S. over those years to help the people of Afghanistan? I'm sure there was something done. I don't have facts and figures on actual things that were built that didn't immediately fall apart or that were never built. But I know overall the, the numbers are not good. Also, when the U.S. was doing a lot of bombing, they ended up bombing things like hospitals. So it goes in both directions, I guess. That's what I'm saying. The lies that were told to the U.S. public over the last years to make sure that this war, this occupation kept going, what sort of issues were they discussing on, on the media to hoodwink the people to believe that progress was being made, it's just a matter of time? Well, a lot of it, frankly, was by not talking about it. Considering the amount of money that was spent there and the huge proportion of the really tremendously bloated military budget went to this war, there was a lot of non-coverage of what was going on over there. There was some talk about the drone program, which, you know, got a lot of good press, even though what it's all about is killing lots and lots of civilians. They'd say a, a strike was a big success when it, uh, when they thought it may have killed a couple of 
Taliban officials and they just wrote off the tens or hundreds of civilians that got caught in the crossfire. In your paper, you focus on war crimes by the US and NATO, and you can add Australia into that, and also the governments that they installed over the years. Can you expand on what you know and what the people know about those war crimes, what's been exposed? The U.S. had an absolutely massive prisoner torture program. Barack Obama explicitly declined to investigate George Bush's torture program. There was some media coverage of some of the uh, war crimes of just shooting people down basically for target practice. There was one man who after many years was found guilty and another soldier who was up to be prosecuted, and Trump pardoned them. You know, that was just blatant. We could care less. But, yeah, torture, killing civilians, you know, without regard, and sometimes even for sport. Have there been whistleblowers? There have, and there's been some very brave whistleblowers, and... um, Most of them are in jail. Oh, I'm not going to remember his name now. There's a a man who was just given something like five years for exposing the crimes of the U.S.'s drone program, which is not only in Afghanistan, but is largely there, and which, by the way, is going to keep on, according to the statements of the government, There's certainly, of course, the WikiLeaks, which involved Iraq, but also Afghanistan war crimes. And I think a lot of reality uh, winners' revelations also involved our war crimes. There's a, a number of others. Are you aware in the United States of alleged war crimes by Australian special forces. There is a a great deal of activity here at the moment to bring people to court. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. We don't hear that much about that here. Some pretty horrible stories have come out. I'm glad to hear it. Now that I know, I'll look it up. The Cost of War Project at Brown University, which you've included in your paper. What did that reveal? That was where I got the figure of over $2 trillion as the uh, money expense, but more so it's the death and destruction that has been wrought, including tens of thousands of government troops, thousands of Taliban troops, tens of thousands of civilians, and a the deaths don't get counted because they're indirect from, like, inability to get food and water after areas have been destroyed. Some of the numbers are an estimated 71,000 civilians, 78,000 Afghan soldiers, 84,000 opposition fighters. On the U.S. and the Allies' side, it was really unbalanced. It was 7,500 some. And then there's all the refugees. Now, some of the refugees come since the war. 2.7 million 
registered refugees from Afghanistan and 2 million people who are, were internally displaced up to this year. And as we know, with the chaos right now, it's more are being displaced as, as we speak. So it's just appalling destruction of people's lives. And when you think of the impact of climate change in that country, the temperatures there are, well, they always were high, but they're rising way into the 50s now. And you've got people who have, don't have a home, their crops are destroyed. It's a disaster, more of a disaster just waiting to happen. Yes, that's very true. And, and that connection with, with climate change is very often not made, but because of the displacement that goes on in these war zones where civilians are not considered is just a disaster. And then a lot of the refugees, they can't even leave now because the surrounding countries have closed their borders because they've got hundreds of thousands already. I'm glad you made, you made that connection because it is important. And also, I should mention, uh, as far as the uh, war crimes, specifics on war crimes, it's good to read Afghan sources on that. If people are interested in going to our website, socialism.com, look up my story on Afghanistan, Bullied, Bombed, and Betrayed. It has links on that page to a statement by the Left Radical of Afghanistan group, uh, that they made about war crimes uh, in 2018, and these two stories on the the plight of women and the situation of the youth from the Etaraz uh, Monthly. And who are these left radicals? They are a socialist group that is Trotskyist in their ideas. The Taliban and all of those are just manipulating and using. I'm hoping that they're doing okay because we haven't been in contact with them now for a month or so. They're a socialist group. They'd be targeted? I would think they would be. Certainly anybody who's known to stand up to the Taliban is in great peril right now. Top leaders of the Taliban are making noises about amnesty and all of this, but the reports on the ground is that that is not at all the case. Radicals are, are very much uh, in peril, and journalists in particular also. I've been reading on a couple of journalist groups, especially there's a, a new one that was started the end of last year, a collective of women journalists that is trying to, you know, report the news from women's standpoint, which doesn't get covered much, and also the... Uh, Revolutionary Association of Women of Afghanistan group because they are opponents of the Taliban. They were also opponents of the U.S. occupation. They are in peril, as are professionals of all kinds. Some of them have been getting murdered. There's also a great deal of concern for the ethnic minorities. Yes, definitely. One of the biggest terror attacks of the Taliban was 
the destruction of a girls' school and the killing of some 85 girls who were part of the Hazara Shiite ethnic minority as well. Those groups are also very much in peril. We're hearing stories now about young women who have been educated. They're burning their books, they're burning their degrees, they're burning everything that connects them to education because they're too frightened because they realise that if, if they're identified as educated women, they'll be targeted. Yet these young women, when they go try to go to overseas, they have no qualifications at all. It's all gone down the drain. Right. The classic catch-22. It's a very scary situation there. And one of the bright spots is that a, a lot of people internationally are, are trying to figure out how to send money to help people, but it's hard to know how to do that and get it into the right hands, too. Things need to settle down a little bit before you can think about that? Yes, perhaps. I did do some research in the last couple of days and found, uh, actually, my women's group, Radical Women, has a couple of statements, one from the Revolutionary Association of Women of Afghanistan, RAWA, on its website, and they have a link organization that will get money to them. There's also this collective of women journalists has a crowdfunding site that you can go to and give money to them. Probably the best way to find it is to look up the Guardian article that was published a couple of days ago talking about the group, and it has, at the, at the bottom of the article, it has a link to send money. And then there's also the International Federation of Journalists, which is a union, and they have a safety fund for uh, Afghan journalists. They are focusing on the women and helping women get, get out of the country if they, you know, if they feel they have to. We've seen dreadful scenes at the airport of people being stopped from leaving. What other avenues are there for people to leave? Well, that's a good question. I think that's one reason why they're, they're continuing to be crowds of people trying to get through. I have to say, you know, as a tiny glimmer of truth, of hope, is, you know, there's indication that people are fighting back. There, was, there were reports in our papers a, a day or so ago about a spontaneous demonstration against the Taliban which took a lot of courage for people to do, and I believe they're popping up in other places around the country. Then this was before the Taliban takeover, but there were a number of demonstrations in, in the north and west of the country where women demonstrated and marched with assault rifles, saying, we're willing to fight. They may end up having to. Are you concerned also that the U.S. might not leave? Yes. The indication seems to be that the perspective is that the troops themselves will leave. But Biden has said that the drone program is going to go on. That means bombing is going to go on, keep going on, will be even less visible 
in the U.S. and people around the world what's going on because they don't have the boots on the ground. So that's a big concern, I think. What would you like to see happening right at this moment? More organizing, more protests. It's important for those of us who are outside of Afghanistan and support the rights of, the, of those people to find ways to give solidarity as much as, as we can and pressure our governments not to just shove this under the carpet. One thing that we called for in my story was paying war reparations. The U.S. ripped up that country for 20 years, and it should pay reparations, and it should provide real reconstruction aid. And meanwhile, those of us who are, are on the left, we can find labor organizations and women's organizations, hopefully at some point radical organizations, to contribute to and aid. We really need more, a, a stronger anti-war movement. You know, I was around during the Vietnam anti-war movement, and that was easier because people were getting drafted and sent over there, so there was much more passion in the U.S. The only thing the U.S. learned from that war was not to have a draft so that, uh, you know, would make the, the anti-war movement much, much weaker, and it, it has. Can I read to you a couple of sentences from a source who said, at first glance, the debacle in Afghanistan implies a failure of the Biden administration. But on a deeper historical level, it represents the demise of Western domination in world affairs. What began with the fall of colonialization and imperialism in the last century has finally ended with American realization that it cannot impose its way of life on a distant nation with an alien culture merely by force. I love it. I hope that it's true. Looking back at Vietnam and then to Afghanistan, uh, they didn't listen. They didn't learn the lesson before. But if they have learned it this time, that would be good. Except that actually. The U.S. and other countries are still making wars in other countries, in Africa and in North Africa and the Mideast. They're continuing to stick their fingers in and thinking that they can control other countries, even though they've learned many times that they can't. They're very slow learners because, because of, you know, how profitable it is, whether or not they win. So it's only profitable for a few. Right. You know, the source of the problem is capitalism. We have to get better at pointing to the real source, making international solidarity among working people of all colors and sexes and sexualities and abilities, because we're the only ones who can make things better in this world. I would love to keep communicating with, with you and with other people about how we work together going forward. There's been a lot of hopeful events in terms of fight back of, of recent years. I look forward to us joining together more closely in those, in those battles to fight for each other. I really enjoyed talking to you. 
Thanks very much. You've been listening to an interview with Megan Cornish, Seattle civil rights activist and a member of Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S dot org dot A-U, a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. Amin Abbas is a diaspora Palestinian and founding board member of the Australian Foundation for Palestinian Children, Olive Kids which is an Australian-registered foundation that seeks to facilitate financial support, education and medical assistance to Palestinian children. Founded in 2007, Olive Kids is run by passionate volunteers from a range of professions. Abin recently put pen to paper and wrote an article for John Menager's public policy journal Pearls and Irritations, titled People-to-people peace initiatives in Palestine must begin with freedom and equality. I asked Amin, was there a particular incident or activity which inspired this piece of writing? As you may be aware, aid, especially particularly in Australia, but also mostly in the West, quite often does not involve direct aid to like government to government, especially in the case of Palestine, where such a, a government does not exist. What we have is a Palestinian authority, which really cannot be described as a government. So quite often what happens is that aid goes through other organizations, sometimes within the country itself, like within Australia. Uh, that is one aspect where I felt that it's important for a lot of well-meaning people that support organizations that predominantly operate on that premise of people-to-people collaboration or, or like feel good approach, understand that this is not really ultimately producing results on the ground. But the second reason is the fact that that aid that I'm describing can be targeted through such organizations. So instead of really ending up building true capacities and empowerment for people on the ground, in that case, Palestinians, it really ends up helping 
basically the very occupier that ultimately it, tend, it intends to help. It's kind of, you know, it becomes a meaningless contribution as opposed to a truly meaningful, empowering contribution. Can you give one example of what you're talking about? What I'm talking about here is scenarios where if there's like a capacity of the health system within Palestine that needed to be helped and we want to help create much better health system, the capacity of people on the ground. This really should be targeted to these people where you, you create such capacities by training them, by sending maybe doctors from within Australia to ensure that there's that right capacity that is basically helping them on the ground, as opposed to helping organizations that operate within the very system uh, that oppresses these people. And this is where the, the actual impact is totally diluted. And if anything, it actually becomes really meaningless because you're really helping the very oppressors that ultimately uh, are benefiting from this very aid. And just to give you like a very specific example from the recent events in Gaza, we do a lot of support and work with people in Gaza, with the health system in Gaza and all the kids, for example, which is the organization I'm, I am part of. But if all the work that we do, there's a, like a massive attack in areas in Gaza where a lot of those people that we work with, the hospitals themselves get attacked, the doctors get killed, then it really makes you wonder, how can you operate with the very government that really goes and does all these atrocities in these places like Gaza, collaborate with them and like talk about people to people initiatives where we like all feel good and do peace. But at the same time, in the one week you're doing this, this next week there's an attack and you're killing a lot of people. Uh, and just to make it very specific also, one particular uh, surgeon, Dr. Ayman Abulaouf, who was killed in the recent attacks in Gaza, in fact, not just him, it was him, his two parents, uh, Reem, his wife, two of his kids were all killed in the recent attacks in Gaza. This is like the most prominent doctor who was treating the most severe COVID cases in Gaza, who was responsible for a lot of the testing centers. He's one of the like most prominent uh, medical practitioners in Gaza. He was in his house in Gaza. He's not involved in anything political, and he, he was killed. So this is, again, a great example where we're talking about those initiatives on the one hand, and we're talking about collaborating as Israelis and Palestinians and all feel good, beautiful campaigns. And at the same time, what happens is these like medical practitioners get killed, the hospitals get attacked, the infrastructure gets totally destroyed, and the children, they ultimately, what, like a lot of those organizations claim to be helping, there's actually massive post-traumatic stress, if not deaths and killing and maiming and maybe killing the parents and making a lot of those children orphans. We fundamentally uh, feel, and this is where, why I wrote the article, that before you start talking about collaborating and having those initiatives, you really ought to give the people the freedom and end the oppression uh, before you start talking about let's get together and normalise and, and have these projects. Well, let's talk about Olive Kids. I mean, how difficult is it for Olive Kids here in Australia to do the work that you want to do? It's definitely challenging being remote. It's also challenging with the situation that we have with COVID. A couple of examples is that we used to send medical missions to Palestine annually. That is not now possible given the restrictions that we have. It was actually not that easy uh, given the restrictions that we have from the occupation. So all these missions have to basically be uh, sanctioned by obviously the occupying power. So we, we obviously we can't get anything into Gaza if 
not for Israel allowing us to get any aid or any such medical missions or any like potential uh, project. So it, it's always restricted. Uh, but COVID adds another kind of challenge to our work. That said, we try and, and do what we can. So we always pivot to try and make things work in the most efficient and possible way. So we've uh, been doing quite a bit of work on the ground recently through campaigns that aim to like address the urgent needs. Um, the situation in Gaza is not that great, not just because of the COVID situation, but also because of the event, like the event in May, where obviously there was a massive attack uh, on Gaza. The onslaught caused a lot of destruction, a lot of death, uh, a lot of injuries, a lot of post-traumatic stress for the children. So we, we try and pivot and change our work to fit the current urgent requirements on the ground. So we, we obviously, it's always challenging. You know, the last 12 months or even six months have made it even more challenging, but we're not stopping. We continue to try and do what we can. I'm just wondering, you now have tax deductibility, and I'm wondering how that works with a, a government like our government here in Australia, who's very close to the government in Israel, yet you've managed to gain that. I thought there might be difficulties getting that. Yeah, look, to be honest, I can't say that this particular uh, part was a challenge because of the position of the Australian government. We've had tax deductibility for a number of years now. You need to obviously follow certain processes from the government side to ensure that you are qualified and you're compliant with the rules of both, you know, the uh, ACNC and also the tax office. So it, it is a process that you need to go through. It's not a simple process, obviously, with a, an organization that is 100% volunteering, like all of every single person is a volunteer. So a dollar that we raise is a dollar that we spend. That element of ensuring that everybody does their work pro bono and we kind of following all those uh, processes was kind of the big achievement that we felt very proud about achieving as, as an organization that is 100% volunteering. The position of the Australian government was not really a major obstacle. I think it would be interesting to see how the Australian government would be willing to listen to organizations like us that are predominantly uh, work on with partners on the ground, indigenous organizations in Palestine, uh, that were not really uh, having any high-profile, prominent people, the likes of some of the other organizations that try and seek and get some of that aid uh, because of that political positioning. So the fact that you're talking about people-to-people -people initiatives, hey, we promote peace, we want to get Palestinians and Israelis together, that means, hey, we're going to give you some money, as opposed to really what the true impact on the ground. So uh, I really hope that the, the Australian government would aim to look at serious assessment of what would make a difference on the ground as opposed to what takes from a, a good political statement and a good feel-good approach where that donation money ends up going. Can I take you back to late 2007? Was this a certain happening that led to the formation of Olive Kids or was it something that had been people's minds for quite a while? Definitely was the growing need that was very clear and evident that we needed to do something about some of the early work that started to happen that we felt needed to be translated into something a bit more structured. In 2007, and that was like a few years uh, in the back of September 11th, where a lot of the work that communities in diaspora, like here in Australia or in America or Canada, so Palestinians who live in such societies in the West or outside Palestine, that want to contribute and help, whether refugee camps even outside Palestine or, or their 
families or friends or even just people, well-meaning people that want to help, a lot of that, like people to people, like the unsanctioned or not organizational aid and assistance was restricted. And there was a lot of like rules around what, who you can send money to and how and for the right reasons in many scenarios, right? So the whole anti-terror laws and the restrictions that were introduced restricted a lot of this aid that was going to a lot of people in, in places like Palestine. That kind of created a, a growing need. And also in the back of also having to help with some of those missions, the fact that we had a lot of children that needed help. So the need was definitely growing. So uh, those two reasons kind of make it compelling for us to start the organization and make it a lot more structured in terms of the way we really wanted to help the children. And it's not just helping the children while they're in orphanages or places like that. It's an ongoing thing for the children as they reach adulthood. So you're quite right. We do help the children that are in orphanages. So we do have a partner on the ground in Gaza, Al-Amal Orphanage, that translates to hope in English. So we have had a very long relationship with them, spans from very early days of all of kids starting. So we have a multiple graduates of children who went through the sponsorship program all the way to becoming independent and reaching 18 years old. So what we do as part of that sponsorship program is we put part of the monthly sponsorship in a bank account, in a trust bank account for the child. So when they become 18, they have like a small amount of money to help them kickstart their education or whatever they choose to do in their life. Uh, but also we have a program where we do sponsorships. We've been focusing more on the health area as well, specifically for nursing. So this program uh, currently has seven uh, nursing students that we sponsor uh, out of all of kids. And we've already like, sponsored three uh, in previous years. Only this week, in fact, this is, this is fresh news. One of the orphans in the orphanage, was actually a hard worker. He achieved 97% in the like, year 12 exams, which is really a massive achievement for uh, a student who's been obviously like under siege in Gaza and often with like, you know, not really a lot of like, this, this is not a child who's got like a lot of private tutoring or any of these privileges that we have in, in the West. So this child achieved 97%. He's been really keen to do medicine. So we, we actually just added uh, this child to our scholarship program. So we provided scholarship to, till he finishes his medical degree. And we also want to do the same to the top girl students. So we have like a boy and a girl. Both actually are the top, like the first and the second top uh, students. So we're going to sponsor her. She wants to do nursing. Uh, so those are two added scholarships given the uh, results for year 12 just came recently. Uh, and those are the two additions that we're adding to uh, our scholarship program. This is one area that we're helping beyond, uh, obviously, the, the young children. We obviously do uh, quite a bit of work uh, around education. We're embarking on doing a little bit around uh, the post-traumatic stress, especially for the children, but also like for uh, the youth. So there's a lot of program that we try and, and do. We're very ambitious. We're very small, but we're very ambitious to try and fill any gap that we actually have on the ground. And you're talking about people, well, I was talking about people who set up this organisation 13, 14 years ago, but you have a lot of younger Palestinian men and women joining Olive Kids. Absolutely. We're very proud of uh, our board. We have young men and women indeed, and we're very proud of the fact that the Palestinians here in Australia were quite keen to contribute, quite keen to do charity work. 
they believe strongly uh, and they're very passionate about helping, particularly the children of Palestine, but also helping for their cause. This is also something that we, uh, like a few of us, embark on, like helping, you know, basically find that passion to, uh, for their heritage. Uh, and we're very successful in having some amazing young men and women who are leading in, in, in many ways, not just in all of kids where it's predominantly charity work, but also in other area where there's community work, even like in cultural side, like, you know, um, you know, the traditional Palestinian Dapke and also like also politically in terms of like writing for the media and uh, becoming uh, engaged in, uh, in in that media field. So we're, we're very proud of our young community here and particularly the young Palestinians. I mean, if you have or have had the opportunity to speak to members of the, the government or parliamentarians about your point of view on on what's happening in Palestine, what are the sort of things that you are able to say to them? I guess the very first thing would be really acting for the rights of Palestinians to really have their freedom is really should be a universal thing for every politician anywhere around the world. The cause has been 70 years of, well, more than 70 years now since 1948, is 73 years of displacements, of oppression. What Palestinians want is equality and the right to freedom, their, their human rights basically respected, which is not really something that is very difficult to achieve. And really just siding with, politically with Israel, regardless of what happens, the discourse of this government, and, and by the way, this is uh, from both sides of political uh, landscape here in Australia, whether it's labor or liberal, they're very strong with advocating the support for Israel, which is unfortunate that nobody really advocates for the rights, the human rights of Palestinians, really. So uh, that would be the very uh, first thing that I would actually advocate is see us as people. We would like our human rights respected. And this is where we would call on every politician to really defend those like Palestinian human rights. You, you hear about what happens in Gaza, for example, the very first thing that our politicians would just pay lip service to, hey, you know, the, the two-state solution or Israel has the right to defense itself. I don't think anybody would ever hear any politician here in Australia saying Palestinians have the right to defend themselves or Palestinians or have the rights to really have their uh, uh, human rights respected, their move, like the, the right to movement. You saw what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah recently with really what nothing, like it's nothing short of ethnic cleansing, people really being kicked out of their houses purely because of not being Jewish, which is not really acceptable in any other context from, you know, any perspective around the world. And yet you don't really hear our politicians defending the rights of Palestinians to really stay in their homes. That is what I would like our politicians to pay attention to. Nevertheless, there are Palestinian Nevertheless, there are parliamentarians who support Palestine. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's definitely the uh, vocal supporters, and I'm definitely uh, grateful for uh, a lot of the parliamentarians, again, from, from both sides, and particularly the Greens, to be honest, uh, that do uh, advocate for Palestinian human rights. We would love for this to really be uh, a lot more universal across the political spectrum here in Australia. Finally... You have a web page, you have Facebook, for people to find out more about Olive Kids. Olivekids.org.au is, I guess, the easiest to get to us. We have, like, the usual social media pages. So please do reach out. Uh, also, if you need any information, we have the ability to contact us through the website. We're happy to answer anybody's questions, but we'd love to get your support and also, like, if 
you know, uh, you advocate purely for like Palestinian human rights because the uh, Palestinian human rights, and particularly for children, is is something that we trust that Australians would love to advocate for. Thanks very much. No worries. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Aman Abbas, a board member of the Australian Foundation for Palestinian Children, better known as Olive Kids. Do have a look at their website and see if you can help the children of Palestine. We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public healthcare. Its contempt for an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love come your way What can I say You feel the hell You change your way In March 2020, the coalition government of Pakistan Harapan was ousted after having ruled Malaysia for 22 months following their unprecedented vote in the 2018 general election. And the president of Pesatu, one of the several political parties who joined to secure that victory in 2018, was ultimately appointed as prime minister. Now, 17 months later, Muhyiddin Yassim has resigned together with his government and political turmoil has continued as it battles a severe COVID outbreak. I spoke with Malaysian-Australian activist Lee Tan 
pointed out that Mohun Yassin has been described as the shortest serving Prime Minister in Malaysian history and asked her for her assessment of the situation and what led up to it. Well, in the first place, as we have mentioned in the past, this particular Prime Minister, Muhyiddin Yassin, he became the Prime Minister through a backdoor so-called palace coup when he, together with several other elected MPs, jumped sheep. Yeah, then the opposition, Amno Basatu parties, formed a new government against the wishes of voters but blessed by the king or the Agong because, you know, he claim, they claimed that they had the majority of parliamentarian support. Unlike Australia, in Malaysia, um, there's no law to ban elected MPs from, uh, you know, joining the opposition party after election. And that's not democratic, of course, but one of the problems with the system of misgovernment, uh, governance, I guess, if you want to put it that way, in Malaysia. And since Mohidin became the prime minister, of course, you know, we all know um, WHO and, uh, declare the, the COVID-19 as a um, global pandemic problem. And Malaysia has to join the rest of the world to deal with um, COVID-19. But unfortunately, this government, uh, with its inflated number of uh, cabinet ministers, before they resigned, there were 40 cabinet ministers for a little country, which is, you know, quite outrageous when it comes to public spending. And uh, it's, a, it's a situation which is not possible in a true democracy. So anyway, even with the inflated and bloated cabinet ministry, they haven't been able to control COVID-19. Daily cases, you know, continue to rise from a few hundred now to over 20,000 a day of COVID-19 infected cases. Hospitals in um, capital cities been overrun and overwhelmed with uh, COVID patients. And people were basically left to die. And uh, medical doctors were ex- uh, exhausted. And even some of the younger ones protesting against it because not only they have to work under unrealistic pressure and under-resourced, they themselves hadn't had any job security because they were all on contract. And yet they have to risk their life and totally, you know, were under really difficult condition. So the country was in a bit of a, well, it was in, in a rather messy situation. Also the vaccination, although, you know, there were some vaccines, but the vaccination, just like Australia, progressing very slowly. Although I think they got more Pfizer than, than Australia did. There's been some scams involving some senior ministers over the vaccine. Uh, And if I'm not mistaken, according to one report, even the king was implied in some vaccine scam, you know, involving United Emirates, Saudi Arabia. So all of these basically increase the public distrust and anger 
of this particular coup government. As I mentioned before, in the first place, it was a backdoor government. And so, you know, the pressure mounted. And also, since um, early this year, a state of emergency was declared in the name of fighting COVID. And that's another reason why people are so angry, because, you know, they have their freedom curtailed, not just for COVID's sake, but under the state of emergency, Parliament hasn't sat for months, only through huge public pressure that last month, the first session of Parliament began. And then there was, of course, the call for no confidence vote. And the Prime Minister basically conveniently extracted himself from uh, the session. They couldn't actually call for a vote of no confidence. And that's how it kind of ended to the situation we have today when the Prime Minister himself and his entire cabinet were forced to resign. And then the new process began, you know, to search for the next kind of interim, uh, next Prime Minister, you know, how, what do you do if you don't want to go into an election because there's a general agreement that an election right now would be too dangerous because of COVID and also it's too costly. The country's already been struggling economically. So that's very much that sums up the situation then. Who's taken over now? When the Prime Minister resigned, <laughs> interestingly, although not surprisingly, the King or the Agong reappointed him as the interim Prime Minister for the caretaker government until a new cabinet is formed or interim caretaker, whatever you call it. So right now, the contest is, you know, who should be the next prime minister? Uh, should it be returned to the previous elected government, the Coalition of Hope, or should it be, you know, all these different parties presenting themselves as the new legitimate government? And that's where the problem lies. AMNO, which is the United Malay, Malay Organization in Malaysia, it's a key party representing the ethnic Malays uh, in Malaysia. They claim they have the majority with a few other parties as a coalition. And they, they supported the appointed deputy, former deputy prime minister, Ismail Sabri. Um, who was also the defense minister in, under uh, the previous Muhyiddin government. But he's very unpopular because he was in charge of COVID-19. He is a um, notorious racist politician who openly championed the ethnic Malay rights and uh, kind of, you know, full sovereignty for Malaysia under the ethnic Malay banner. And, and also had championed the need for Malays to, to boycott other ethnic groups' businesses, predominantly the Chinese. So he's been known to be. And, and also not only he promoted that, he actually tried to do that and then caused uh, many of the Malay businesses to suffer and, and uh, went bankrupt because it was not so much a scheme against the non-Malays, but it was more a scheme to enrich some government-linked enterprises and, and to try and monopolize 
the trade, particularly in uh, uh, computers and mobile phones and you know all these all these new IT gadgets. So because of that, he's really unpopular. And to top up, he was caught eating banned turtle eggs in Sabah, and and it became a you know a pretty shameful kind of um, expose day. Because the nominator or the proposed candidate, Ismail Sabri, is so unpopular, now under the constitution, the king will have to decide. And yesterday, the king matched with AMNO, which is the Malay party, including you know some of the key figures in that, but none of the former government legitimately elected uh, government or party members. And today, uh, the king will meet with the sultans and the, and the traditional rulers to basically decide who will the, be the prime minister. The prime minister will then appoint his cabinet or her cabinet. Um, so this is where we are at today. So it's far from democracy by the people. Well, in that sense that because of people's protests, things were changing but it's still not changing enough to turn democracy to the people. Where does Anwar Ibrahim fit into all this? Basically, he's been sidelined from what we can see. I I think it is not hard to look at, to see that the king and Muhyiddin and Amno, they have some kind of, I guess, um, agreement. They are all for the so-called Malay rights. Some people see Anwar as being too radical, as a, a kind of um, Islam advocate. Although, you know, the Malaysian government, or well, in the past at least, under UMNO, had manipulated Islam as a religion to control the people by setting up an Islamic council, which is more or less, you know, doing what, uh, or trying to do what the Taliban's been doing. But it's kind of legitimized by the government of the day. So Anwar and party, of course, are not happy, but they seem not to get the recognition from by the king. Are there any moves in recent months to bring to account those who were responsible for the billion-dollar one MDV financial scandal? Well, this is interesting. Najib is still under trial. And in fact, even right up to this week, he was in, in the court uh, on trial. But I think on Wednesday, or earlier this week anyway, one of the days, he actually asked for permission to leave his trial early to attend a meeting to talk about, you know, how to go from here to return power to UMNO, his political party. So it goes to show, you know, like there's no law and order at the moment in Malaysia. It's money speaks. Um, many of the MPs who jump party are actually paid millions, you know, probably from taxpayers through some underhanded way. But until there is democratic governance, the people would not know exactly what's going on up in um, Putrajaya, at the centre of governance in Kuala Lumpur. But the people who are 
ill, the people who have died, are they the working class, are they the foreign workers in Malaysia predominantly? Yes, by and large, yes, predominantly. Um, of course, the migrant workers fare the worst because they live in very impoverished, crowded and unhygienic condition. And then the working class, um, some through their lack of knowledge about COVID-19, there hasn't been very effective public education, but increasingly the middle class are feeling it, which is why, you know, the pressure has um, gone back to the government. You know, the working class and the, and the migrant workers got very little political power in Malaysia, if at all. So until the middle class feel the pinch, the government's been allowed to do whatever they like. But now um, some of the deaths and the hospitalized severe cases of COVID are from the middle class. This is when, you know, the middle class got panicked and started to put pressure, started to demand accountability, a return to uh, governance. Finally, Lee, if you had a crystal ball, what would you be seeing? I actually don't feel optimistic. I will see somebody from UMNO, I have no idea who, is really difficult to gauge. You know, will be the Prime Minister uh, after the ruler have met today. It won't be democratic, but it will be hopefully slightly better, or they have to, otherwise the people will riot. Next, I mean, riot in that sense that they will start to protests very strongly as they had when uh, Ismail Sabri was um, first suggested. I mean, my optimistic self is saying that the public under pressure through COVID and economic downturn uh, because of COVID will pay more attention to politics and therefore, you know, reassert some form of democratic rights. Yeah, to demand their politicians, whether it's elected by them or not, to perform their duty. And then they, all eyes will be on the next federal election. I hope under this public pressure, the caretaker government will at least try to do as much as they could to curb COVID-19 and then to try and revive the economy without you know, sacrificing more people, and sacrificing people, particularly the marginalized communities in Malaysia, do not see a major breakthrough, unfortunately. Thank you once again, Leitan. You're welcome, Jen. And a postscript to that interview with Leitan, Ishmael Yaqub was appointed the new Prime Minister of Malaysia. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 
and featured in a special Mayday edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. When I spoke with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, about a month ago, the main topic for discussion was the just-completed four-day visit to French Polynesia by the French President Emmanuel Macron. But there appears to be one significant negative result of that visit. Yeah, one of the, the major problems for French Polynesia is that they have a massive surge of COVID-19 cases, uh, people infected with the Delta variant of the coronavirus over the last month and this follows a visit to French Polynesia by the French president Emmanuel Macron as we've talked about before on the program he pledged to come to new uh, to French Polynesia for the last few years was due in April last year but the trip was delayed by the the beginning of the covid pandemic however he arrived on the 24th of July this year with an entourage of about 150 people uh, they travelled by plane through Tokyo. He was stopped off for the opening of the Olympic Games in Tokyo. And then his uh, contingent came on to Tahiti uh, for a variety of reasons, particularly to reinforce France's role as a colonial power in the region, uh, to bolster what he calls his Indo-Pacific policy, um, and also to meet with the local government headed by President Edward Fritsch. But the aftermath of that has seen a massive, massive surge of cases of COVID and the numbers per capita are much greater than what's happening in Sydney at the moment. For example, you know, French Polynesia is a French dependency in the Pacific with about 280,000 people, so much smaller, obviously, than Australia, yet the cases are, are surging. And yesterday, in the last 24 hours, they had 1,416 cases of COVID, 10 deaths in the last 24 hours. So it gives you a, a sense of the scale of the problem in such a relatively small country. What resources do they have to cope with it? Well, the resources are stretched. Um, just as a big country like Australia, hospitals are, are in, in country towns in New South Wales and in Sydney itself are, are under pressure. The hospital in uh, French Polynesia is under terrible pressure. And it's a particular problem. French Polynesia had a big surge of cases last year um, when France opened up its borders on the 15th of July 2020 
middle of July last year, they open up the borders in French Polynesia because France controls, uh, you know, immigration, customs, borders and so on. And there was a number of returning people, a number of tourists came from America and cases surged between August and, and January. And it took that long, nearly five months, to get this massive outbreak last year under control. And at that time, France deployed a, a huge amount of medical resources, um, uh, you know, doctors and medical teams, specialist teams. And we've seen that, say, Australia sending support to Fiji um, because the the health services in the Pacific are relatively small and stretched. Um, they've got a number of uh, intensive care beds, but not enough to deal with a problem this size. One problem today, however, with this latest surge of cases uh, in August this year, rather than August last year, is that there's a massive outbreak also in the French dependencies in the Caribbean, places like Guadeloupe and Martinique and other, other locations in the Caribbean. And France has deployed a huge amount of medical teams, resources, extra drugs, Pfizer, vaccinations and so on to the Caribbean. I spoke to a, a lawyer in French Polynesia this week and he said that they felt that they were a bit alone. And one small symbol of solidarity is that the new government of uh, New Caledonia, uh, led by uh, Louis Mapu, the first pro-independence president they have in nearly 40 years, New Caledonia has just sent a small contingent of 14 nurses and medical aides to Tahiti to uh, uh, help with the break at the hospital um, in Tahiti. A serious number of, uh, of, of cases uh, in uh, the French dependency. You know, I think, I think the scale of it is, is really important. One way of measuring, because the population size is different, they use what's called a seven-day average. You know, the numbers, as we've seen in Australia, in Victoria and New South Wales, the numbers bounce around. But if you average them out over a week, you get a bit of a sense of the scale of the problem over more than one day. When Macron arrived on the 24th of, uh, of July uh, for his four-day visit, the cases were at about nine cases a day on average over the week. When he left, they were uh, at 63 cases a day over the week. Today, the latest figures, sorry, from yesterday, the latest figures is um, 1,104 cases a day spread over the week, averaged over the week. So it's gone from nine cases a day to over 1,000 cases a day. Um, it's a massive rapid surge and it shows the virulence of this uh, particularly infectious variant, which is dubbed the Delta variant, but it also shows you know, that, that the control of movement, the control of borders is such a, a, an important part of this, uh, this pandemic. And uh, while people understandably are, are angry about lockdowns and the economic, the mental health and other pressures that come to people, particularly those who haven't got jobs, you only have to look at developing countries like French Polynesia to see that these outbreaks cause a massive, massive toll. Can you think of a reason or reasons why... France would be denying support to French Polynesia? Well, it's not that they're denying it. It's just that they don't have enough support to go around. They have a massive problem at home. The Delta surge is the latest wave of infection in many countries around the world, including France. And France has a very high toll in metropolitan France, in Europe, uh, from COVID. So, and this pandemic, as we know in Australia, has been going on for 18 months. This pandemic will clearly go on well into 2022 
And indeed, some people, like the epidemiologist Peter Doherty, are saying that globally, the pandemic won't be under control for a few more years. And one of the problems is, you know, there's an enormous inequity in access to vaccines on a global scale. Uh, A key part of, uh, you know, getting this under control is to vaccinate as much of the population as you can. Um, France has certainly been providing vaccines to its overseas colonies, overseas dependencies, and about uh, 89,000 people in French Polynesia have had two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. That's uh, roughly a quarter of the population is uh, double-dosed at this stage. So it's a major step forward compared to the, the surge that we saw in August, September last year. But there's still a long way to go. And uh, as I say, unfortunately, tragically, 10 people died yesterday. 1,400, more than 1,400 people in the last 24 hours were infected with the virus. On the ABC this morning, people talking about a Pacific island, I'm not quite sure, a Pacific nation, that the people were going without food because of the pandemic. What's the situation in French Polynesia if people are so sick? The supply of food, do you know what's happening in that area? Look, in many Pacific countries, there's been a a big challenge because the best protection that they've had is to close borders. And so a number of independent countries around the Pacific, you think of small island states like Kiribati and Tuvalu, or Vanuatu, have had relatively few cases, just three or four at the borders on average, uh, Samoa and others, simply because they've locked down the borders and stopped the transmission with very strong quarantine systems, you know, requirements for testing and quarantine when people arrive in the country. And so they've avoided the worst of it. But the cost of that has been disruption of supply lines from everything from tourists to, uh, you know, imported foodstuffs and things like that. In many countries, there's been a massive turn back to agriculture to supply food. You know, in Vanuatu, in Papua New Guinea, people in the villages, uh, in Fiji, people in the villages have been growing food. Um, People in urban squatter settlements have been setting up little sup-sup gardens, little uh, uh, local gardens on village plots and things just to increase food supply. Um, In other cases, people that had been growing food for the Hospitality and restaurant trade have switched their markets from an international audience, overseas tourists coming, to a local market. Um, so some time ago I interviewed a, a woman in the Cook Islands last year who ran an organic produce farm. She used to sell to restaurants and, and uh, high-end hotels so that they could market clean, green food for, for visiting tourists. After a massive hit to her uh, income last year, she switched to try and sell to a domestic market. So people are adapting and resilient to the challenges of this. One of the problems for French Polynesia is that not a lot of people grow their own food compared to other Pacific countries. And that's a fundamental change over a couple of generations. You know, one of the the big features of the era of nuclear testing, when France began nuclear testing in 1966 to 1996, it saw not only a health and environmental impact on the country, but a massive economic transfer and transformation of the society and many people moved away from farming and fishing you know into the service sector into reliance and while the French military was active in French Polynesia pumping large amounts of money into the economy people could live very comfortably and French Polynesia has a relatively high 
GDP for uh, a Pacific Island country. But that's reliant on these massive subsidies from France. And I spoke to, uh, I interviewed someone uh, last week in French Polynesia, and they said people are turning back to gardening to grow local foods, grow healthy foods, um, because, you know, a lot of the imported foodstuffs have been much more expensive to come into the country. But many people have lost the skills, uh, lost land, lost uh, lost the, the infrastructure to really boost agriculture rapidly. And both uh, the, the current government under Edward Fritsch and pro-independence parties like uh, Oscar Temeru's Tabini Huiratira have spoken about the need for a level of self-sufficiency because the tourism industry has just been hammered by uh, border closures that French Polynesia has been forced to, to introduce. Also, the impact of imported food on the, the health of the islanders over many years. You know, one of the big problems across uh, many Polynesian countries is uh, uh, what are called non-communicable diseases in the jargon, uh, NCDs, uh, um, you know, obesity, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular problems. Uh, these are so-called civilised diseases uh, in the medical terminology. Uh, many people in Mel- poorer Melanesian countries like Papua New Guinea still die of infectious diseases, uh, tuberculosis, uh, malaria and so on. Many people in Polynesia have serious problems with uh, obesity uh, and, and uh, diabetes. And so at a time when there's um, a global pandemic and the added burden of uh, protecting people against coronavirus, this is putting significant stress on uh, people's health. And so nutrition uh, and well-being is very much connected to uh, you know, doing better in the face of, of coronavirus. And I think this really exposes one of the real problems um, for uh, uh, French Polynesia in this. There's a a real gap between urban and rural populations and between wealthy people and poorer people. You know, this pandemic is revealing the the divides within as well as between societies across the globe. Um, And you're seeing, you know, poorer people have less opportunity to avoid getting infected, They're, you know, as we see in Australia, in the western suburbs of Sydney, essential workers who have to get out day by day to work in workplaces who can't work from home are at greater risk of exposure. And it's the same as true in French Polynesia as anywhere else. Similarly, many people in rural and outlying atolls don't have the same uh, access to medical care or indeed vaccination as people living in the capital. And one of the big differences between the current surge of cases and the uh, previous surge in August, September, October last year is that the Delta variant has spread to outer islands in French Polynesia. You know, it's a country spread across a vast area. There's five different archipelagos, the Tuamotu Islands, the Austral Islands, the Windward and Leeward Islands in the Society Islands and so on. It's an area of, you know, bigger than Australia in terms of ocean space. French Polynesia has 5 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone. It's a massive, massive area, a large ocean state, even though the land areas are small atolls. And, you know, on this recent trip at the end of July, President Macron visited the outer islands. He went to the Marquesas Islands, which is one archipelago colonised by France in 1842, well before they colonised Tahiti and the Society Islands. And it was the first time a French president had ever been to the Marquesas. And there was mass crowds, there was cultural performances, there was a lot of people who were there. 
he also went to Manihi uh, in the Tuamotu Islands. Uh, Manihi is a tiny, a tiny island, very small village there, and uh, he, uh, you know, walked through the village. Uh, kids were running around. There was a huge entourage with journalists and security people and minders and other politicians, local and French, uh, accompanying the French president on this visit. And although everyone was masked up, soon after he left, the nurse on Mahinihi, which had been COVID-free up until then, reported the first case. It's not simply that the Macron visit helped spread the Delta variant, but it certainly didn't help because the numbers tell the story. While there were cases of covid in the community before he arrived, it's gone from nine or 10 cases a day to 1,100 cases a day. And that surge is a major, major problem for such a small country. You began by talking about the aid from New Caledonia to French Polynesia. There's only three or four months left before the third and final referendum. What's the situation there at the moment? The independence movement, the Kanak Socialist National Liberation Front, the FLNKS, and a number of other smaller political parties that support independence outside the main umbrella coalition are gearing up for the referendum. We've talked on the program before about the Numea Accord, this framework agreement that governs the country. Under the, the agreement, uh, it was agreed that there could be up to three referenda on self-determination, the first referendum was in 2018, and uh, 47% of, uh, sorry, 43% of people voted yes for independence. That was much greater than the polls, than the commentators, than most experts were predicting. The second vote held in October last year, October 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, inched closer towards a majority. 47% of people voted yes for independence. So the independence movement is pressing forward. There's a third vote. But instead of forming a consensus around when that should be, the French government is rushing to hold it this year. And thus the third vote will be on the 12th of December this year. Um, as you say, there's only a short time, a few months left, in the middle of a you know, pandemic, in the middle of economic pressures. The independence movement faces the challenge of turning people out to vote and getting them to vote yes, vote yes for independence. One of the big changes from this year to previous votes in 2018 and 2020 is that a majority of the multi-party government of New Caledonia now support independence. I won't go into all the details, but um, earlier this year, the Congress re-elected the government. 11 new members came in, and for the first time in more than 20 years, six out of 11 members of the government support independence. That was the situation in, in April. And after some months of argy-bargy, the first pro-independence president of the country, Louis Mapu, uh, a Kanak independence leader, was elected as president from the, from the uh, 11-member government. So it's a major change. That hasn't happened in nearly 40 years that a Kanak independence supporter has taken the leadership of the government. And that's changed the terrain on the ground in New Caledonia as the government prepares to uh, call out voters for this referendum uh, in December. And we'll hear more from journalist and researcher Nick McClellan on the program next week. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, 
It's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at this station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Last week we heard the first part of the interview with retired trade unionist Jim McElroy speaking about Bob Hawke, union leader, Labor Prime Minister and CIA informant. Now to the second part. And then we have the combination of Hawke and Keating. If we move to the question of the Hawke-Keating government, there is evidence that way back in the 70s, Hawke did favour the use of a a sort of a tripartite um, agreement between employers, government and unions. That's what actually was implemented after 1983 when, when he became Prime Minister as everyone will remember, called the Prices and Incomes Accord. Of course, that's a topic for a considerable discussion in itself, the history of the Prices and Incomes Accord, but basically it did succeed in holding down wages, but as to prices, it doesn't. I don't think it had much effect on prices since inflation really accelerated in the latter part of the 80s and into the 90s, and um, it's not quite clear how much work has got in return for showing moderation on wages. So that was a, that the whole history of the accord, in fact, is quite a controversial one. Hawke wouldn't have been acting by himself. He must have had other members of the, the trade union movement or the Labor Party on his side. Yes. Well, of course, the, the famous duo was Hawke and Paul Keating, who formed a... a close bond later on of course they fell out and Keating then moved and took over from Hawke in the, in the early 90s but I mean there was a struggle going on if we look at the general situation there was a huge struggle going on inside the Labor Party and inside the trade unions right through the uh, 70s and 80s really it was the taming of the Labor Party and the taming of the trade unions went hand in hand and Hawke and Keating played a critical role in that but I remember one of the critical issues everyone will remember was the question of uh, the campaign against uranium mining. Uranium mining was a huge issue right through the latter 1970s and into the 80s, and Hawke was actually supported by other key figures like Bob Hogg from the socialist left of the Labor Party, who played a critical role in taming the Labor Party left at that stage. And then, of course, the ban on uranium mining was overturned, and... You know, uranium mining went ahead 
that led to a split in the Labor Party and the formation of the Nuclear Disarmament Party. And actually, in my opinion, probably laid the groundwork for the later formation of the Greens. The NDP was, in a sense, a, a stepping stone towards the formation of the Greens in the early, early 1990s. You would say that he was a very unpopular man within the union movement. People understood his role. I wouldn't say that because he obviously had considerable popularity among significant sections of the workers and that's how he was able to carry out his role. He was unpopular in, in a number of sections of the left in the trade union movement and, and in the Labor Party and the socialist left. But the socialist left itself really essentially split most of all on the issue of uranium mining but also on the issue of unions and the accord because a section of the left of the trade unions opposed the accord realising that it was going to tame the union. Yeah, so Hawke and Keating together uh, became quite unpopular in some aspects that, I mean, it would be not correct to say that Hawke was not popular among many sections of the Australian working class and uh, and people and that's how he was able to carry out his role and also win whatever it was four elections or something like that you haven't yet mentioned the ford factory in Broadmeadows, which was a an important issue and also a very big u.s corporation well for that um, aspect i'm referring to a july 7 article in the pen and that was written by long-term Melbourne-based union militant Joe Montero. Joe Montero is still involved in left politics in, in Melbourne at the moment. Well, first of all, there was a, quite a major strike at Ford in 1973. Ford played a main role in, in sort of bringing that to a conclusion. But the big one was the struggle in 1981, which I actually was fortunate enough to be able to observe. I was on the picket lines and it was one of the great industrial disputes of that period. Uh, Joe Montero says that Ford, there was uh, an alliance between Hawke and uh, the National Secretary of the Vehicle Builders Union, Len Townsend. He says in his article, Montero that is, he and Len Townsend were trustees of the Australian and chapter of the Harvard Union Program, which was very well known to be associated with the CIA and was involved in sort of infiltrating trade union um, organisations all around the world, not just Australia. Another leader of that program was Laurie Short from the Federated Ironworkers Association, well known and infamous as one of the leaders of the right of the unions. And I quote uh, Joe Montero, at Ford, Townsend was behind the scenes assistant with, uh, with the behind the scenes assistance from Hawke, began to target job stewards and union activists. I was a principal target. I vividly remember the occasions, usually prior to a union meeting, when Townsend, flanked by senior company management, would come to warn me at my workplace. On a couple of occasions, Townsend threatened to have me killed. I was quite astounded to read that and he goes on to say each year a group of unionists is sent to the u.s for training at harvard university a way was found to get a shop steward to attend undercover this confirmed that this was about creating operatives to, to apply american policies within the australian trade union movement and through this into the labor party the program also involved the american chamber of commerce in australia
So I think that's a very key example. And of course, remember, this is 1981. So we're we're in the period of very big industrial struggles that in many ways, I, I would say it's fair to argue those industrial struggles, including, you know, the, uh, the Metal Workers Union, and we had mass strikes, mass meetings, that actually prepared the way for the downfall of the Fraser government and the coming to power of Labor with Hawke as Prime Minister. Strikes like that huge strike at Ford were critical uh, in the rise of the class struggle at that time. The whole process of Hawke coming to power, uh, the fall of the Liberal government uh, and the, the creation of the Accord was very much in, a, in consonance with US policies in Australia and around the world at the time. And of course, his great friendships with members of the employment class and one which people knew a lot about was Sir Peter Abels. Yes, that's right, he did. And I think that was probably maybe laid the basis for the for the, the actual development of the Accord because he had uh, personal links with a number of key employers and employer groups and it was on the basis of that that the Accord, when unions, management and the government were able to actually develop. Sir Peter Abels and other uh, leading employers you know, also played that role in the personal relationship at all, which is probably critical to that as well. His lasting legacy? I will actually utilise uh, an article that I wrote in Green Left in, uh, in the middle of 2019. It was written shortly after Hawke died. And, of course, we remember there was a big funeral and, you know, he, he received a whole lot of accolades and people not only from the Labor movement but from the other side of politics paid him respects and so on. But I think we need to have a, a rather more balanced view of the role of Bob Hawke in his whole career. I wrote an article entitled Bob Hawke, the PM who tamed the Labor movement. It said that this was Bob Hawke's strategy for most of his union career and it continued into his position as Prime Minister. Hawke, using his full authority as the former president of the ACTU and then Prime Minister, played a key role in orchestrating the shackling of the union movement to a strategy of class collaboration with the Australian corporate sector and the state. We're now living with the disastrous consequences of the decline in union power and militancy that exists today. This is the primary legacy of Bob Hawke and his Labor government. Whatever else might be written and spoken about the, quote, man of the Australian people and the silver bodgie, he was the person who did more than anyone else to undermine the Australian Labor movement's tradition of industrial struggle and militancy. And that was Jim McElroy, long-time unionist here in Australia. I'm speaking now with Coral Winter. Coral, you had first-hand experience with Bob Hawke. How long ago was that? I would have been in, I think the date, 1981 or 1982. And it was just after he was pre-selected for the um, seat of will. He'd moved from the ACTU. He had been president of the ALP for a long time, but he'd moved and got pre-selection in the seat of Wills, which was a, you know, a solid Labor seat in Melbourne in 1980. And what happened was, um, I was a member of the Socialist Workers' Party, but we were all encouraged to join the Labor Party and try and build a sort of a new left within the, the Labor Party after it sort of had moved to the right and, you know, a lot of attacks on the left within the Labor Party. But we were trying to build up a left within the Labor Party again. And so we started putting out a monthly magazine called 
Labor militants, distributed amongst Labor Party members. And so I'd been involved in the Labor Party for about five or six years and I was living in Melbourne and I just happened to be in the um, branch of the seat of will. I was nobody in that branch. I was just an ordinary member. Anyway, I remember on the back page of Labor Militant, one issue, we wrote an article about Bob Hawke and his role within the ACTU and his role of closing down um, union struggles and strikes. And I think it was over the issue of the Christian we reported about his role in the attack on the building unions. I think it was the beginning trying to, again, to deregister the BLF and his role in deregistering the BLF Australia-wide and particularly in Melbourne because it was the building unions at that time were really militant and had campaigned and achieved a 35-hour week, stopped work at night on building sites, had um, really... Um, increased wages and working fewer hours and had really won an enormous number of conditions for building workers. Bob Hawke had this incredible role to destroy them. And so we'd written this article when he got pre-selection for Wilson and it was my name. And so he then came to a, a Labor Party branch, an ordinary branch, and, and um, I didn't have any idea of this, and attacked me and tried to expel me from the Labor Party. So that was my <laughs> my issue with Bob Hawke. Well, he would have been, um, yeah, member for Will. That's how he got in, got into the Federal Labor Party, through his pre-selection for Will after 1980, and then contested Bill Hayden for leader of the leadership of the Labor Party. You remember a month before that extraordinary election in 1983 when he deposed Bill Hayden and agreement with the left of the Labor Party and in 1983 that September election uh, when they won it. Did you follow his career of destruction of the Labor movement? No, I didn't really. I A year or so, a couple of years after that, we realised we just weren't making any headway with Labor militants. It was really sewn up by the, by the Conservatives in the Labor Party. They destroyed the left. You know, I think that, that point that Jim mentioned, you know, that overturning of the, um, against the mining, uranium mining, and they brought in the three mines policy, that was sort of the, the, a really key point and a sort of a turning point within the Labor Party when that was lost. A lot of progressive people left the Labor Party after that, yes. The only other time I came in contact was, I was in Queensland working with the Workers' Health Centre, maybe 87. The head of the trade unions then, after Hawke, I was working with Workers' Health Centre and they came up to try again to, um, you know, close down strikes, really attack the trade union movement. And there they were telling us about the, the cutbacks and the lack of funding and they were going to um, defund the, the Workers' Health Centre which was paid for by the trade union movement. And I began to think, well, what about the incomes and prices accord? You know, this is totally opposed to what they sold us. They sold us a pup. You know, there was no positive uh, or benefits for workers in what they what they did with that income, the prices income support, yes. You weren't at the Coburg Town Hall when the tomatoes were thrown at Hawk. His support for the uranium movement, and they, they were up in the gallery and they threw the tomatoes at him. No, I was in Sydney at that time, and I remember 
the left and the Labour Party here in Sydney organised that huge march, that massive uranium mine against uranium mining, that march. I remember I was there when, you know, we marched up George Street. It was just massive, covered the whole of George Street from Central right up to Town Hall. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, yeah, against that policy. And they just, you know, it was ignored and, you know, it was overthrown. That was a really, I think, a big turning point in the whole progressive movement within the Labour Party was destroyed. And that's why, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people left the Labour Party. The Labour Party is not just a shell what it used to be and what it should represent, you know, was it will no longer represent certain people. Reflections on Bob Hawke by Jim McElroy and Coral Winter, members of Socialist Alliance. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.